Praise God. It's so good to be with you, to join fellowship with you, and to be able to share God's word. I'd like to begin by asking God's help. Father, we turn to you. Apart from you, Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. You're the vine. We are merely the branches. If we hope to bear fruit, O oh Lord, we must abide in you by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I ask, O oh Lord, that you would be with us now. Strengthen me as I preach your word. Strengthen all of us, O oh Lord, as we listen to it and as we take it to heart. Feed us, O oh Lord. You commanded the apostle Peter... After he was restored from great sin, you commanded him, feed my sheep. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would feed us now by the Holy Spirit and by your word. O oh Lord, specifically as we turn to Romans 11, I pray that you would lift our, our hearts and our minds out of the muck of sin and out of anxiety and stress and concern over daily things and temporal things that have no eternal consequence. Lift our hearts up, O oh Lord, that we may worship you and praise you that we might be deeply and richly satisfied in you. As these beautiful songs that we've already sung today have all been feasting-type languages, we have, we have yearned to be in the presence of our Redeemer and glory in the Redeemer and, and, and just feast on, on all that God has done for us in Christ. I pray that we would have a bit of a foretaste of that now through the ministry of the Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Paul, I don't remember that we were competitors back then, but we're certainly friends in the gospel now. And so I'm grateful that you have been gracious to invite me to preach today and to be able to speak to you, my brothers and sisters. So if you have a copy of God's Word, turn in it to Romans 11, 33-36. Um, and uh, I think they project some slides here too, so we'll have a chance to look at some of that along the way. And I want to just go through this magnificent doxology in Romans 11, 33 through 36. I'm going to read it, and then we'll just work our way through it. Romans 11, 33 and following, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now I had the privilege of preaching through the uh, book of Romans over many, many sermons over many years. I didn't go many years in Romans, but I would go for a number of months and then take a break and then come back. And it took a number of years to get through it. And we went through some incredibly deep, rich, difficult passages in Romans. Any of you who have studied Romans know how many deep doctrines there are really leading right up to this doxology. But as I began the sermon that day, I said these things. I said this, this passage is the most difficult passage in Romans for me to preach. Very, very difficult. Now, the, the congregation was surprised because we'd been through some really deep doctrines. But this is what Charles Spurgeon said about preaching. In 1864, he said about preaching this doxology. He said, I will affirm that there is no man living who can preach from this text a sermon worthy of it. Nay, that among all the sacred orders and eloquent pleaders for God, there did never live and never will live a man capable of reaching the height of the great argument contained in these few simple words. I utterly despair of success. That's pretty bad, isn't it? If the, if the preacher is saying, I utterly despair of success in preaching today, 
But he means success in capturing it perfectly. I think that's what he means. And therefore will not make an attempt to work out the infinite glory of the sentence. Our great God alone can expound this verse. For he only knows himself. And he only can worthily set forth his own perfections. So that's what I'm relying on today. I'm relying on the Holy Spirit to preach this sermon through me and into your hearts. I can't really capture the, te- the text here. I can't really capture the truths here adequately in any words I would say. And it wouldn't be lasting anyway, but if the Spirit were to minister to you through these words, then that would be lasting. We're going to be looking step by step through this. It's just straight exposition and uh, preaching from the, from the text. We're going to start with the tiny word of wonder. Oh, talk about that. And then we'll go from that in verse 33 to the unfathomable depths of God's wisdom. And in the same verse, the untraceable mysteries of God's paths. And then the absolute independence of God's position in verses 34 and 35. We're going to look at the centrality of God's ownership and glory in verse 36. And then I'm going to seek to apply it briefly to you at the end. Now, I was thinking that I had two or three hours to preach today, but apparently I don't. So I'll try to land the plane uh, in, in suitable time. But... You know, I would urge you uh, just to realize we're just glancing over these things lightly and to take this text yourselves this afternoon and go back and step through it verse by verse. I love to be a a verse-by-verse expositor because I really want to give people a chance to go back over it themselves and preach it to themselves. This really ultimately is about worship, isn't it? This doxology is about worship. It's a word of praise. That's what doxology means. It's to stimulate us to worship. And so I hope that the worship's going to continue right beyond what the musicians and singers have done for us in serving us so well here. And that this will continue our worship time. What is worship? True worship is a, is a matter of revelation and response, isn't it? God reveals and we respond. That's true worship. We're going to worship in spirit and truth. And in the book of Romans, I would argue that God has revealed more of Himself than perhaps in any other book of the Bible because it's really all about the gospel. And so the purpose of this doxology is to motivate us to wonder and worship and praise, to be stunned and amazed at God and what He has done and what He plans to do, to be really stupefied, really to put your hand over your mouth and be moved deeply at Almighty God. So you're almost breathless, stammering. You have your breath taken away and you're just amazed at the greatness of Almighty God as you go over these things. At who He is, at His ways, His plans, His thoughts, His actions, His strategies. So that's my goal. My goal is to stimulate you to worship in a lasting uh, way that will stick with you. I want to move you beyond boredom and deadness and dullness and dryness that may come over your souls. But I cannot do it. Only the Holy Spirit of God can do it. And that's my prayer and my desire. May He do so now. Have you lost the sense of wonder in Christ? Have you lost the sense of excitement? You know, the stony ground here receives the word immediately with joy, but then when trouble comes, he falls away. Have you lost that, that sense of wonder? You know, you think about a child and how everything's just amazing and wonderful to them. Recently, I had a chance to be with my family for the first time at a cathedral of a different kind of worship, Fenway Park. Uh, we, we, we hoped that we weren't there as idolaters. I've been a Red Sox fan, suffered with them uh, for years and years, for decades. 
My older son really became a Red Sox fan in 2004, and so he only knows amazing success, and he's always optimistic, and I I know all the stuff that preceded that. You know what I'm talking about. But at any rate, we walked up through the stairs to see the green grass, and I tried to watch Calvin's face as as he looked at that, because I remember my first time there, and it's just amazing. And so through kids, you know, there's always this sense of wonder and amazement, but as you get older, you start to be older and wiser and sadder, and in some ways, it's been a long time since you were amazed at anything. And you start to have those dead eyes, like a cow's eyes, you know, dead. I remember I was on a mission trip in Kenya, and this cow was in the middle of the road. I'll never forget it. It was chewing its cud, and it was blocking the road. And we came up in this 4 by 4 and uh, we honked a horn, and it just was chewing, and it just kind of turned its head slowly, and it kept chewing and looking at us. Dead eyes. Nothing going on. No thoughts at all. Deadness. And we kept honking, nothing, until this little Kenyan boy came up with a little switch and went on the behind, and then ran off the road. And I fear that we getting old and jaded and having gone through sins and, and our conscience violated, to some degree we've lost a sense of wonder in the gospel and a sense of wonder in Christ. Well, I can tell you, if you're a genuine Christian, the Holy Spirit can restore that any time. And more than that, you're going to spend eternity in that feasting in wonder and amazement. You're going to be lost in it. And so I want to kind of have you lost a little bit in that right now. Because the Holy Spirit's a down payment deposit guaranteeing our full inheritance. And so we can taste that a little bit now. We don't expect to have the full amount, but it's just a down payment. And we can enjoy it now. So let's begin and look at the first word, oh. Oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. It's a single word in the Greek language, the Letter Omega, it's the last letter. I, I tend to think of that as the last word. It's the last thing God's doing. He's going to work wonder in us. He's going to work O in us. Theology, study of God's word, was not meant only to stimulate our intellect, not meant only to, to broaden our brains with unfathomable facts. It's really to move us deeply in our hearts so that we can say something like this, O. Now, what's the purpose of that word? Why did Paul write it? What's, what does it mean? I think it has to do with worship. As the hymn writer put it, change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. I, I would love that to happen to me almost any day. I want to be lost in wonder, love, and praise. And it seems that that's what's happening to Paul as he is the... Uh, original author of these things. Heaven is a place of self-forgetfulness. You're not going to be thinking, how do I look when you're around the throne? Am I looking good? I'm looking glorious here, aren't I? This is the best I've ever looked. Well, it will be the best you've ever looked, but no one will care. No one's looking at you. You'll be radiant with glory, but they'll all be looking at the source of your glory, and that's Christ. They'll be amazed at that, and you will be too. You'll be lost in that. You'll lose yourself. And that's what I think is happening to Paul. I think we need to be regularly amazed and stupefied and, and, and just drawn away in wonder at what Christ has done for us at the cross. The hymn writers seem to be in that so often, the really great hymn writers. Like Charles Wesley, when he wrote, And Can It Be? It's like he just can't get over it. He just keeps working over it again and again. Can it really be that Christ would die for a sinner like me? Can that even be that I would gain an interest in the Savior's blood? That I 
personally would be the reason he died. He just can't seem to get over that. So we need to join with the Apostle Paul in uttering that kind of a, a word of wonder. Oh, oh, he says, just look at this incredible God. And it's very God-centered. This worship is all God-centered. Look again at the words. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. It's very God-centered, this worship. What amazes Paul here, what moves him to write that word, oh, is God. He is the infinite source of our happiness and of our worship. And so, he speaks a passionate word. Now, what's the context here? We're jumping, parachuting almost, right in the middle of the book of Romans. Now, if you had been in the congregation where I served, you would have been through a number of sermons leading up, and I could have referred, well, last week we did it, the week before, etc., and we can talk about that. But here I just want to just remind you of where you will have been by this point that you get to this word, oh, and start to contemplate the greatness of God through the 11 chapters of theology, the deepest, richest, most careful exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ there is in the whole Bible. It starts Romans 1 and verse 16 and 17. Paul gives us the theme of the whole book. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness from God is revealed, the righteousness it is from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's the theme of the whole book of Romans, really, you could argue, the whole book of the Bible. And then in Romans 1 through 3, he talks about how the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And he goes through in Romans 1 and 2 and on into 3 about how we're all sinners. Every one of us are sinners. We all need a Savior. And he's very careful and detailed about how, apart from Christ, we're doing nothing but storing up wrath every day. And you're living around people, as, as we heard Paul read in Ephesians 2, who are dead in their transgressions and sins and are storing up wrath every day while they live. And we were doing the same thing. We were no different. There was no difference between us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every last one of us. There is no one righteous not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3, 9 and 10. He's very, very clear about the universality of sin. It's a universal problem. And then in Romans 3, 21 through 26, he gives us the glowing center of the gospel. And that is this, the atoning work of Jesus Christ and shedding His blood on the cross. That's the center of everything. This is the righteousness from God available to us through Jesus Christ. God presented Him as a propitiation through faith in His blood. That word means a sacrifice. Through His bloody death, Jesus turns away the wrath of God. He is to some degree our lightning rod. He attracts the strike of the wrath of God and carries it safely away from us so that we are free from wrath and condemnation. Romans 3, 21-26, the glowing center of the gospel. Jesus dead on the cross, our substitutionary atonement from Almighty God. And then in Romans chapter 4, he works out the doctrine 
of justification by faith alone apart from works. We are made righteous in the sight of God just like Abraham and like David and like any saint that has ever lived. We are made right in the sight of God by faith alone apart from works. There's nothing we can do to deserve it but simply by trusting in Christ we are forgiven. And therefore in Romans 5 he gives us this magnificent assurance of our salvation. Having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we have all this assurance language in Romans 5. And then in very, with very deep theology, he likens what Jesus did for us as the second Adam to what Adam did for us negatively, the first Adam. In Adam, we all sinned. In Adam, we're all condemned. In Adam, we all die. But in Christ, the second Adam, we get life and forgiveness and we get eternity and what Christ gives us, gives us is infinitely better and, and more weighty than anything we ever got from Adam. That's what Romans 5 says. And then in Romans 6, he starts to talk to us about our Christian lives. Now that we've been justified, he talks about sanctification. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? May it never be. We died to sin in Christ. We're united with Him. We died to sin in Christ. And now we must walk in righteousness. We must consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. But that's really hard to do. Very, very hard to do because in Romans 7, we have this body of sin. We have this flesh. And so the very thing we hate, we do. And the very thing we want to do, we do not do. Just like the Apostle Paul. What a battle every day with the flesh. And the world and the devil are assaulting and drawing and calling to our fleshly nature. And the fleshly nature is responding and it's a battle. And Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're looking forward to full deliverance, but it hasn't come yet. That's why you're in church today. You're not done being saved. You've been justified. You're being sanctified, but you haven't been glorified yet. And it's coming but you need to feed on God's Word. You need to run this race with endurance. That's Hebrews, but anyway. You need, to, you need to just, you know, you need to feed on God's Word. And so we are given the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, a spirit of adoption. We know there's no condemnation, but it's not for everybody. There's no condemnation for those who are living by the Spirit. Those who know how by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And those people were predestined before the foundation of the world to be conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8 teaches us very plainly. And we have, therefore, absolute assurance of our final salvation. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you think I'm ever going to preach this doxology? I'm just preaching the whole book of Romans here. But anyway, that's what he means when he says, oh, the depths of the riches. That's what is in his mind. But then in Romans 9 through 11, he gets into a very deep, profound, difficult problem for him. may not be as big a problem for us, but it, it really should be if you meditate on it. And that's the problem of how is it that God's people, the Jews, are almost universally rejecting Christ? And he asks this poignant question in Romans 9, 6. Has God's word failed concerning the Jews? And you say, well, what does that have to do with me? I'm a Gentile. What's what it has to do with you? If God's word can fail toward the Jews, it can fail toward you. And all of the eight chapters of promises and all the things you've learned, they can all go out the window because God isn't a promise keeper and none of it matters if God's word can fail. But God's word can never fail. God's word hasn't failed concerning the Jews. And then Paul gives six answers to the Jewish problem. Six answers. 
And I don't have time to go through them all, okay? But he gives six answers. First and foremost, the answer of individual personal election. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. They're not all of them God's children. Just because you have a physical genealogy doesn't mean you're going to heaven. It has to do with God's sovereign election, God's purpose and election. He gives them uh, you know, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. And he says very plainly, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by God. Not by works, but by God, the one who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. He's establishing the principle of sovereign grace in election. And he says in Romans 9, 15 and following, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Salvation, therefore, does not depend on man's desire or man's effort, but on God who has mercy. And therefore, God has mercy on whom he wills to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wills to harden. That's Paul's first answer. Second answer is the stumbling of the Jews over Christ was because they were trying to establish their own righteousness and not God's. That's the second answer. Third answer is that salvation is essentially, essentially simple. You hear the gospel and believe it. It's not hard. You don't have to go up to heaven or go down to the depths. It's really quite simple and straightforward. If they confess with their mouths, Jesus is Lord, and if they believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, they'll be saved. It's very simple and straightforward. It's not a mystery. And fourth, the rejection of the Jewish nation is not total. Some Jews are believing in Jesus. Paul himself is an example of that. And so there's a remnant chosen by grace. In every generation, there's going to be a remnant chosen by grace. Paul's fifth answer, the rejection of the Jewish nation is not purposeless. God is working out a plan. And so by the hardening of the Jewish nation, Gentiles are getting saved now. A river of grace going to all the nations. And it's just flowing, and it's been flowing now for 2,000 years. And Paul's sixth and final answer is the rejection of the Jewish nation is not final. I believe that final generation of Jews will come to faith in Christ, and so all Israel will be saved, and that's going to be the final act of redemptive history. So there's six answers real quickly. And, and he gets into all of this, and then Romans 1 through 11, the doctrine of salvation, then this doxology stands like a hinge, and then in Romans 12 through 16, you have all of this practical application. How then shall we live? What shall we do? We shall present our bodies as living sacrifices and we'll, we'll use our spiritual gifts and on he goes into all kinds of topics of the Christian life. This doxology's hinge right in the middle. So he's basically gotten to the end of his doctrinal section and now he is praising God for it. So, we start with the unfathomable depths of God's wisdom in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The depths of God. The Greek word is bathos. There's, God is very deep. It bothers me when we talk about theology and someone starts saying, oh, we're getting really deep here. That bothers Yes, we're, we're going to get even deeper. We're going to go as deep as we can go. In 1521, Ferdinand Magellan was circumnavigating the globe. He gets to the middle of the Pacific Ocean. He wants to find out how deep the ocean is there. So he takes all the available cord and splices it together, ties it to a cannonball, six lengths of cord, and he runs out of, he runs out of rope. <laughs> runs out of rope. And so he concluded, that was about 2,000 feet down, that the Pacific was unfathomable. Okay? Well, researchers trying to pinpoint his location, didn't know exactly where he was, guessed that he would need 50 lengths of line at that place to reach the bottom. 50. So that's a picture of the depths of God, perhaps. But not exactly, because there is a bottom. And if you did have 50 lengths, you could reach it. 
you can't reach the end, the bottom of God. He's infinite. So maybe outer space would be better. Think about Pioneer 10, that probe that left the solar system back in the early 80s, traveling at 30,000 miles an hour. Finally, first man-made thing to ever leave the solar system. If it were to travel at that speed to the nearest star, it would take 300,000 years. That's to the nearest star. So maybe outer space is a little bit better when it comes to the depths of God. Infinite, you'll never reach the end, ever. What's going to keep our attention for all eternity? God will. He's infinite. And so he is celebrating the depths of God, but not only that, the depths of the riches here. You see the word riches. There's idea is that we as co-heirs with Christ are infinitely rich. We're really wealthy in God. By God in God, we are rich. Paul loves to use this riches language. In Romans 9.23, he says, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? God wants to be rich to the objects of his mercy. And so he's going to lavish on him for all eternity. He's going to pour out riches. And then Romans 12, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's that riches language. We are rich in God. Most of our brothers and sisters in Christ are really poor around the world. Really poor. I've met some really poor brothers and sisters in Haiti and in other places in the world. They have almost nothing, but they're rich in God. And they know it. And they they gather and they worship and they celebrate how rich they are. And we're rich too. We're rich too in God. But he goes beyond that. Oh, the depths of the, uh, the, the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He talks about wisdom and knowledge. And I don't make a distinction there between wisdom and knowledge. Basically, I think that God, before the foundation of the world, as he thought about human history before any of it happened, wisely sorted out the best path and the best destination for human history. The best destination is that all things would be for the praise of his glory. That's the best purpose and destination and reason. And then he worked out the best path to get there. And this is it. You may not think it is. You may have a better idea. We'll get to that later in the message. If you want to be God's counselor, we'll get to that. If you want to apply for the job of God's advice giver, we'll get to that in a second. But God, God's wisdom and knowledge is unsearchable and powerful, the the wisdom and knowledge of God. And in verse 33, he says how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. So this is the second point, the untraceable mysteries of God's paths. You can't trace out what God is doing. You can't stalk him. You can't track him. Think about like Daniel Boone or Jim Bridger or some of these mountain men, you know, from the West, exploring the West. And they were expert trackers you know they could follow a war party or they could follow a deer or or something that they were tracking and because you know we we leave we leave a trail and you're able you know if you if you're skilled at it you can track you know the animal the quarry what you're going at but you can't track god you can't let's put it this way you can't connect the dots you can't figure out what he's doing or where he's going in many cases I mean, that's one of the problems with the whole what would Jesus do thing. I don't always know what he would do. (laughs) I don't think the apostles knew what he was going to do. They were frequently surprised by things he did. So I can take a guess, and I'm growing to, in the mind of Christ, understand what would Jesus do. But most of the time, I don't have any idea what he would do. Because I I can't trace out his past. Do you ever feel that way in your life? I don't know what God's doing to me. I don't understand this. 
I'm going through suffering right now. I'm hurting. I don't understand this. It doesn't line up the God I know. Does he still love me? Why am I suffering like I am? Why do I have this disease? One of our elders was diagnosed with brain uh, cancer uh, this week. Brain tumor. Good friend of mine. I know him. He's strong in faith. But I know he's probably going to be asking that question. Or Satan's going to be whispering in his ear. Why is God doing this to you? What does it say about God? Very much. And, and God's past are beyond tracing out. We, don't, we wouldn't have thought of it. How unsearchable it says his judgments. What does that word judgments mean? Well, I don't think it so much has to do with God as the judge of all the earth, judging heaven and hell, sending people to heaven and hell. I think that's part of it, actually. But it's more just his decisions and decrees. What he's decided to do with the human race, big picture, and what he's decided to do with every human being that he would create and knit together in his or her mother's womb. What he would do with each one. How unsearchable his judgments. And his past beyond tracing out. You, you can't figure out what God's doing. God doesn't seem to travel in a line. Now, it doesn't mean God's irrational. It just means he's way above your ability to reason out what he's doing. Infinitely above. Thirdly, the absolute independence of God's position. Look at verses 34 and 35. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Now, some of these phrases are taken from the book of Job. You remember that whole uh, issue with Job? How... How God just allowed Satan to pound on Job and take away every possession in his family except his wife and his health and all that. And he, Job, is left to question God. And he actually, it gets pretty bad. Initially he didn't sin, but as it goes on in Job 19, he said, God has wronged me. Now that's pretty big. God has wronged me. And he says, I cry for help, but there is no justice. So God is unjust toward me. Now, this is pretty serious. Now, Job's friends don't help at all. But Job makes these statements. And he basically says, I wish that God were in front of me. I could confront him. And I'd ask him some questions. And he'd have to answer me. Well, it didn't go that way. You remember? You remember what happened instead? God came in a whirlwind and confronted him and asked him a bunch of questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I spread out the heavens and scattered the starry host? Where were you? Did I ask your advice when I did all that? And God speaks very tough to him for a period of time and in a beautiful, marvelous way heals him of the real disease that was gnawing at him. All of us have it since Adam. Rebellion against Almighty God. Questioning him. Murmuring against him. He was healed of that. Still diseased. Still had all his children dead, still his possessions all gone, but infinitely happy because God had talked to him and showed himself. You see what I'm saying? Infinitely happy because of that. Then God restored him and showed him his love. And so Paul, picking up on all of that, basically wants us to put our hand over our mouth like Job did and repent and despise ourselves in dust and ashes like Job did. And so there's a series of questions he asks here. Paul does. Three questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Do any of you, can any of you say, I understand the mind of the Lord? I understand. I have searched the deep things of the mind of God. And I understand what he's thinking. Oh, anything you truly understand about the mind of God has been revealed to you by the Spirit who searches the deep things of God and makes them known. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Secondly, who has 
been God's counselor. Can you picture Almighty God asking for advice? Boy, we've reached this juncture in history here, and I just don't know what to do. Let me, let me go beyond that. Can you picture him asking you for advice? Now, be careful before you answer, because I think sometimes you wanted that job. You were willing to volunteer to be God's counselor, God's advice giver, at least in reference to your life. You wanted to give him some advice concerning your spouse, maybe, or concerning your kids, or concerning your job, or your financial situation, or concerning the salvation of a loved one. You wanted to give some, God some advice. You thought you had a better plan. That was the whole problem, in my opinion, with Rob Bell. You know, he comes out there, if you don't know what I'm talking about, but he has a better plan, a better story, a better end than the Bible. How arrogant is that? Are we going to give God advice? Are we his counselors? And the third question here, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Everything comes from God, and God will never owe you anything. That is absolutely vital. God doesn't owe us anything. And anything we would give to God, he owned it already. Anything. All of the gold and silver is his. The cattle on a thousand hills, that psalm, basically God's saying, everything you would give to me, I own it already. It was already mine by creation and by sustaining grace. It's my stuff. You are my stuff. It's all my stuff. It all belongs to me. There's nothing you can give me that I don't already own. Oh, but I can give you my creativity. Really? Can any poet ever say, I thought of a poem that God didn't think of first? God's saying, wow, I'm surprised. I never thought of the, that way of putting the English language together. That's incredible. Thank you for that poem. Any poem, any painting, any picture, any art, anything, it was first in the mind of God. All of it. And so God will never owe us anything. He never will. Everything you give to God was his already. All of it. He's never indebted anyone. Think of the basic transaction in the marketplace, right? You're standing before the shopkeeper, the owner. You hand him the money, and he hands you the goods and your change. And so after you've handed the money, you are now in the creditor position. The person who's received it in the debtor, they owe you something. That never happens with God. Never. You never are able to say to God, you owe me an explanation. You owe it to me to do this. God will never owe anything to anyone. And Why is that? Well, because from him and through him and to him are all things. So that's the centrality of God's ownership and glory in verse 36. From him, God is the alpha. He is the alpha. Everything comes from God through Jesus Christ. Everything. God is the originator and the creator. Through him, God is the sustainer of all things. By the word of his power, spoken through Christ, continually sustaining this universe in its present form. By his sovereign will, this universe continues to exist just like this. For from him and through him and, I look at it this way, back to him go all things. So I picture Judgment Day in which God gets it all back and then says to us, now what did you do with it? That's a stewardship question, isn't it? Stewardship. Everything you had, I gave you. What did you do with it? Tell me. It all goes back to God. He's going to ask you what you did with it. It's all going back to God, though. It's not yours. None of it. From him 
through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory for everything. So that means your physical attributes, your height, your hair color, however much hair you may have, still have, your eye color, your talents, your abilities, from him, through him, to him, all things. Every dollar you have from him and through him and to him. The gospel is from him, it's through him, and it's back to him. Every elect person, every redeemed person, from him, through him, and to him are all things. There's no exceptions. Amen. That's it. To God be the glory forever and ever. So, what application can we take from this very brief look at this doxology? And I hope you sense we could have lingered on each one of these points a lot longer. So I would urge you, linger. Linger. You have the time. Spend the time this way. Let me begin by urging any of you that are here that know yourself to be outside of Christ. Maybe you were invited here today. You're not a Christian. You're not claiming to be a Christian. Or maybe you're not sure. The first, the best thing I can ever do in preaching God's word is to invite you to come to Christ. That you would trust in Jesus, in him alone. That you would not trust in your own works, as we already said, they will not avail you anything. That you will see this great God I've been preaching is reaching out to you right now as though God himself were making his appeal through me. He's urging, he's pleading with you through me right now. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. God made Christ who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Trust in him. That's all you need to do. You don't need to move a muscle. You can be completely paralyzed. You wouldn't be able to move anything. But if you can hear, faith comes by hearing. And then you believe in your heart that Jesus is your Savior and God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. So trust in him. Don't leave this room. Don't leave this place unredeemed. Don't leave this place lost. You've come here to a place where the gospel is preached every week. And now you're hearing it again. Believe and trust. Now, if you've already come to faith in Christ, I'll give you quickly some Applications. I don't usually alliterate like this, but they all begin with A and help you to remember. First, let's start with assess. Assess your own heart. Is your heart cold toward God? Are your eyes more like the eyes of a child, sparkling, full of life, excited about what God's doing? Or are you more like the cow, dead, kind of chewing the cud, making it through? All right? So assess your own heart. Are you delighted in Christ? Are you sparkly with joy over what God has done for you in Jesus? Are you just almost like up on your toes in anticipation of where you're going. I'm just talking to my brother Steve. I haven't seen him in years. I said, we're a few decades closer to heaven. That's what I said to him. Amen. Amen. Every hour, every day brings me closer to my heavenly reward. I'm, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Assess your own heart, though. Are you feeling dead or are you lively through the Spirit? Secondly, acknowledge. Acknowledge personal sin, worldliness that's crept in. That's got the deadening effect. That's why we feel dead and distant. It's because of sin. We become worldly, going after idols, created things, thinking they're going to satisfy like this God. Never. This God alone is the joy giver. So, you know, acknowledge your own sinfulness. Acknowledge, take responsibility for your patterns of sin. Ask God to forgive you. He is gracious and merciful in Christ to forgive all sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And accept that everything that comes to you is from God. There are no, there's no luck here. We don't believe in luck. I hope you didn't come in here believing in luck. It's luck or God. Amen? All right, that's it. It was your choice. I believe in God, and therefore everything that comes my way came from this wise God, part of his plan. All right? So, accept that. 
Accept that everything you have, all of your strengths and weaknesses come from God. All of it. And therefore, be humble. Don't boast over your attributes. Don't boast over your gifts and abilities. Don't covet other people's things. And don't complain over what God's doing in your life. And fourthly, anticipate. Look forward to heaven. Look forward to feasting on this God. This is the only thing, the only infinite thing that can hold my attention for thousands and thousands of millennia, for eternity. But a God like this is able to do it. We're going to be feasting on God forever. Just anticipate. Think about what heaven's going to be like. Set your hearts on things above. For Christ is seated at the right hand of God, not on things below. Set your hearts on God. And finally, adore. Feast on him now. All right? Go over this again. This is just go line by line. Go over these phrases beyond tracing out. What does that mean? You know, oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God. Just do what I did. That's all I did here. Just go over these phrases and talk about them to yourself and adore him. Let your heart be lifted up to God in worship, wonder, and praise. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the brief time that we've had in your word. We thank you for God's word. We thank you for this church. I'm so, so grateful to know that this body is here in Haverhill. And for Paul Buckley and his, his team that's here with him, for his wife, I thank you for my friends that are here from New Meadows and from previous years. I thank you for sustaining and protecting them all these many years in grace. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help all of us to, to run this race with endurance and finish the race and do all of those good works that Paul talked about in, in uh, Ephesians 2.10 that Paul Buckley just read about, that we, would, that we would do those good works every day to the glory of God and help us to be joy-filled and powerful in him. In Jesus' name.